Let's go. Gear up and start the mission. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 8 of Season 2 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Today, I'm going to be reading from a brand new project I've been working on, whose working title is The Devil Passed By. It's a novel that takes place in Northern Ireland in 1979. Very early in Mai Fisher's espionage career, and also early in her partnership with Alexei Bukharin. In fact, that partnership is a little over a year old. It's a little different take on their working and personal relationship. And a little bit of Northern Ireland history. I'm going to read a little bit from that. And then at the break, I'm going to talk about episode four of the Netflix series Spycraft. The episode, which is called Clandestine Collection, is fascinating and really scary. So let me set up a little bit of the deviled pass by. The devil pass by, not the deviled, not talking about deviled eggs here. The Devil Passed By, with a little bit of an explanation of the title. When I got the idea for it back in December or so, late late November, early December, I really wanted to call it Patriot Game, after a Irish Rebellion song of the same name called Patriot Game, singular. But then I remembered Tom Clancy's Patriot Games, which was about the troubles in Northern Ireland coming to the United States. So I decided the title needed to be a bit more original. I started listening to a lot of Irish folk music and music about Irish, various Irish rebellions. In fact, I made up a playlist in Spotify of songs that would have been played in Ireland in the year 1979 initially and then from the 1970s, about three hours worth (laughs) of songs, which is fine because they're all songs I remember from my ute. One of the ones I found was a song called Back Home in Derry, meaning Londonderry. The Irish don't call it Londonderry, it's Derry. And the lyrics to that song are actually a poem by Bobby Sands, who was one of the hunger strikers from the 1980s who starved himself to death. And then an Irish singer by the name of Christy Moore, very famous Irish singer, set the words of Bobby Sands' poems to music And that music happened to be the same music from The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So it's a 
very interesting listen to hear that music and to hear different words sung to it. And a line in that poem slash song is, the devil passed by. And bingo, that was what I decided to use. So while I'm reading this, remember, this is a rough draft. It has not been edited at all. That's coming up. So please be gentle <laughs> if you decide to go on my social media and comment about it. And it opens in 1973 in a military hospital. So we'll get started. The Devil Passed By Musgrave Park Hospital, Duke of Connaught Unit, Belfast, Northern Ireland, 1973. I think I'm back in the laundry. The antiseptic smell of soap, the acrid chemical smell of cleaners, the musty smell of clothes in the presser, hot and steamy. Mrs. McCarthy brings in her husband's shirt and coat and asks for the usual, and could you deliver them when they're ready? I tell her I'm happy to do so. We chat amiably as always, and she leaves with her ticket, promising to have a cup of tea for me when I deliver the clean clothing. I take Mr. McCarthy's clothing to the back where Corporal Barney waits. I know he's Corporal Barney. No one else does. As no one else knows, I'm Lance Corporal Carrie Lee Felton. We're plain clothes army, and there's a reason for it. I hand him Mr. McCarthy's clothing, and Barney applies the paraffin to the cuffs. Once it solidifies, he peels it away with care. He sprays the paraffin with sodium rhodizinate, and we wait. When the blue dots appear, Barney grins. We got the bastard, he says. At some point in the past few days, Mrs. McCarthy's loving husband has fired a gun, and that fits with the time frame of a shooting down by the gasworks. Advise Graves, I tell him handing him my side of the claim ticket, the side with the McCarthy's address. I'll be delivering to the McCarthy's house day after tomorrow. Graves, he'll have a squad ready. Yes, Lance Corporal. I grasp him by his collar and give him a shake. Watch yourself, Barney, using ranks here. Sorry, Lance, uh, Carrie Lee. It's hard to put that aside. You better... The wrong person hears that, we're done for. When I go back to the counter, Mrs. Byrne is there with her good coat. She's smiling, and I think nothing of it. After a break in reality, a shift as if the film has ripped and been badly spliced, I stand on Mrs. McCarthy's stoop, handing her the clothing. I can hear Mr. McCarthy in the background yelling at the children. I lift my hand to touch my braid as Mrs. McCarthy and I chat, my signal to the lads in the squad that Mr. McCarthy is in the house. 
a vehicle comes screeching up before the McCarthy house. But no, that's wrong. The squad waits two doors down at the entrance to the alley. They'll cut through the alley, hit the McCarthy house from the rear. Mrs. McCarthy's face goes white as the clean shirt I've given her, and I turn around. A rust-red van, side door open, five men and a driver. Their guns appear. I bring out my Browning pistol. The five men leave the van, taking cover behind it and other cars parked on the street. My blood is roaring in my ears. My heart beats so hard I think it will burst from my chest. I hear gunshots. Gunsmoke surrounds the van. Mrs. McCarthy drops the clean clothes on the stoop, and she crumples there. There is blood on the stoop, on the clean shirt, on Mrs. McCarthy. Children scream. There is pain as I've never felt in my side, in my gut. I fire at the shooters and I run, continuing to fire. I think two of them, two of the shooters, are on the ground. I don't make it far. I collapse in front of someone else's house. I hear more shooting, more screaming, but the sounds are far away, as if I'm underwater, as if I'm drowning. I look up and see Mrs. Byrne standing over me, sunlight making a halo around her head. She is a shadow, but I know it's her. She spits in my face. The spittle, wet and warm, slides down my cheek. My side, my abdomen, also wet and warm, throb in time with my slowing pulse. You fecking traitor, Mrs. Burns says. The last thing I see before blackness is her brogan-covered foot headed for my face. Monroe Residence, Belfast, Northern Ireland, 1979. The team caught the Monroes in their kitchen in the midst of a fight over money. Once the Monroes saw the guns and the masked men, they fell silent and, argument forgotten, clung to each other. Three men held them at gunpoint at the kitchen table while three more men went through the small house. When the searchers returned to the kitchen, one shook his head. The smallest of the men looked at the Monroes. Where are your sons? Out, Declan Monroe said. The man might have been small, but when he brought the butt of his browning pistol down upon the top of Declan's head, it stunned the man almost speechless. Where are your sons? came the repeated question. Out on the hunt, you know, said Dinah Monroe, first wringing her hands, then using her apron to staunch the blood seeping over Declan's face. For girls. Don't tell them nothing, Declan said. How old are the sons? the smallest man asked of one of the other men. Sixteen and seventeen. If not already recruited, they're ripe to be, was the answer. 
best to nip it in the bud, said the small man. Declan looked up at the masked small man. I know that voice. Give me time and I'll remember. But I know your voice. I do. Shut up or your wife will get a bullet between the eyes, the small man said and leaned down into Dinah Monroe's face. Where would your boys be on the hunt? There's a social thing tonight at the Catholic Youth Club, Dinah said. I said to shut up, Dinah, Declan replied. The small man lifted his pistol and, without looking, shot Declan in the chest. You want to live, Mrs. Monroe? the small man asked. Weeping now, all Dinah could do was nod. Which youth club? Between gasping sobs, she told them where, what time it started, what time it would be over, and when the boys were expected home, and the small man nodded to the three searchers. They left the way they'd come. The small man took a card from his pocket and lay it face up on the kitchen table. Jesus, but that sniveling is a bother, the small man said, looking at the crying Dinah Monroe. Dinah got two bullets between her eyes. Amid the silence in the house, the rest of the team left. Though gravely wounded, when a neighbor happened to arrive to ask Declan to go to pub with him, Declan managed to answer when the neighbor asked, Who did this to you then, Declan? Nachain, Declan wheezed and died. The three men in the battered car watched the only exit from the youth club. Young people started filtering out about an hour before the event was supposed to end, and the men checked photographs against each face as they passed within the arc of a streetlight. Some of the last to leave were Innes and Tommy Monroe. One man left the car and took a route through the back streets to tail the two boys who'd be headed home. After a decent separation, the other two started the car and followed them. In truth, the two boys were too busy discussing the assets of one Caitlin O'Connor to notice anything amiss. But when they turned down the lane to their house and a car roared past them, barely missing them, they shouted their displeasure. Watch out, you bastards, the older one, Ennis, cried. You almost hit us. Yeah, watch yourself, you fuckers, chimed in Tommy, not to be outdone. Fucking Protestant fuckers. You're on the wrong side of town. The boys weren't bothered by the window of the driver's side lowering, nor the door on the passenger side opening. When the passenger braced his arms on the top of the car, Innes had the thought they should run, but his feet felt rooted as his mouth went dry. The sounds were soft, barely audible, like coughing, but the pain in their chests was unbearable. As the boys lay on the street looking up at the sky and gasping for breath, the third man walked up, pulling his balaclava down to cover his face. Ma, Tommy murmured, eyes unfocused. Ma, it hurts. Sorry, boys, 
she's already a goner, said the man, and shot them both in the head. All right, so that's first. They're not the first two chapters, but they're two chapters from fairly early in this novel, kind of setting things up. So let's talk about the Netflix series Spycraft Episode 4, which is called Clandestine Collection. And it focuses on the technical operations, the equipment, the gadgets that spies use to collect information. And those gadgets can be anything from little tiny bugs that'll fit into a watch or a camera that'll fit into a fountain pen to the SR-71 Blackbird or the U-2 reconnaissance aircraft. And by the way, if you've never seen an SR-72, 72, 71, if you've never seen the Blackbird, <laughs> go to, I think they have, they used to have one at the Udvarhazy unit of the Air, Air and Space Museum out at Dulles Airport. It's a fascinating looking aircraft. It looks very alien almost. And it's a fascinating story of, of behind it about how fast it can fly, how high it can fly. Great airplane for an airplane geek like me. It's just like seventh heaven to see it or to be near it. So uh, the newest thing among these gadgets are these tiny drones that can be used now that can, can be flown to, say, a conference outside of a conference room where someone is meeting and kind of land on the on the windowsill and pick up the conversations that are happening inside the room. I think it was last time I talked about how the Chinese have developed drones that look like real birds and are so realistic that other birds of the same species start flocking to fly with the drone. But the experts in this episode talked about how the major goal of a spy is to find information about the enemy by clandestine collection and in such a way that the enemy doesn't know that you now have this information. I mean, that's the classic work of a spy. But of course, that's only part of it. Once you collect it, You've got to do something with it. You've got to be able to pass it on to the analysts who can figure out exactly what, what use it's good for. So spies steal an adversary's information without them knowing. That's clandestine collection. So the first example that they gave was of an event not too far, not too long ago in 19, I mean, excuse me, in 2017, about a CIA case officer named, let me find it, Kevin Mallory. I took notes, so you'll hear me flipping back and forth through my notes here. He was a CIA case officer, and a lot of people in the government, including apparently people in the CIA, 
are now on the business social media site called LinkedIn. I'm on there not so much for my writing as for the first few years after I retired and I was doing consulting work, you know, I made an account in LinkedIn to indicate my aviation background and that I was available for consulting work. And when I watched this episode of Spycraft, I remember that initially, right after I first put my profile up there, I think which was slightly a, a few months before I retired, that all of a sudden I was getting friend requests from a lot of people from China. And this Kevin Mallory accepted the friend request of a man from China who, um, I forget what cover story they said this man used, but it turns out he was recruiting for Chinese intelligence. And Mallory, for some reason, needed money. He was in debt. So he agreed to give information to the to the Chinese intelligence service. And they worked this out what they thought was an ingenious way. Mallory flew to Hong Kong where he met with an agent from the Chinese intelligence service who gave him a cell phone he was told was so encrypted it could never be broken. But while he was there, he got the impression that maybe he was being watched by his own people. And he did manage to make another trip over there. And the way he got the information to the Chinese was he had an SD card or a SIM card with all the material on it that he put in the cell phone. So, of course, now he goes through security. The cell phone goes through security. He gets to Hong Kong, hands over the cell phone. The Chinese take the SIM card out of it. He closes it up and he comes back. But again, he's worried about having been made. So he decides to go right to his superiors and say, hey, look, I think I've been recruited by this or this, this guy from Chinese intelligence is trying to recruit me. And look, they, they gave me the cell phone and um, I don't know how to get into it, but you might be able to get into it all the while thinking that what he'd been told that it was uncrackable, they would not be able to get into it. His superiors take it and they hand it over to their cybersecurity people who crack it in like a ridiculously short amount of time. And on that phone, they find all the text messages and all the phone calls between Mallory and the Chinese that are very incriminating. And he's convicted and sent to prison for, uh, convicted of spying and sent to prison for 20 years. So, of course, then they say, well, you know, a spy is only as good as his spyware. And that's pretty much true. If you've got uncrackable stuff, then you have pretty much free reign. But as we're, we're seeing, the, the level of technology, even as it increases, there are geniuses out there who can crack that technology. So recruitment of insiders 
are is a major tactic of Chinese intelligence. And another example of that, and this happened shortly before, shortly after I retired. No, uh, 2015, it was after I retired. Chinese intelligence hacked into the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. Now, this is the agency in the government that keeps all the data on the types of jobs that are in the federal government and who has held those jobs. So I'm in there. Even though I'm retired, I'm in there because I held various jobs in the federal government for 30 years. And the Chinese did this for two reasons. One was to look at the types of qualifications and education that were needed for specific kinds of jobs so that they could then go train their agents to those qualifications and then be able to infiltrate those agents into government agencies. And then the other reason was they could identify people who were current government employees in intelligence agencies so that they could possibly recruit them. So they had a two-pronged approach. The Office of Personnel Management uh, let all current and past federal employees know that this had happened. I got a letter from them. And because it has my social security number and all that stuff, all my personal identification stuff in my file, you know, we got credit protection for a year or two years. I don't remember how long it was, but frankly, the Chinese weren't looking for to do identity theft other than to match, like I said, the qualifications of requirements for certain government jobs so they could infiltrate and then to identify people they wanted to recruit. The internet, they said in this, is of course a gold mine, particularly if you have an agency that has an antiquated computer security system. It's apparently very easy to hack in. Then they talked about Edward Snowden. And if you're a person that thinks Edward Snowden is a hero, don't. Edward Snowden wasn't really trying to tell the truth about clandestine U.S. activities. He was looking for money. And he got it from the Chinese and from the Russians. I mean, the fact that he... He lives in Russia now, lives a very decent life, has become a Russian citizen, is married to a Russian woman, and is reaping the benefits of all the technology or all the information that he brought out. And the way he did this, the, he, he brought out over one million different documents on multiple thumb drives, and he kind of conned. He was a contractor at the time for the NSA, and he conned them into saying, well, um, I have epilepsy, and I want to go to China to try this experimental treatment. So he went to Hong Kong with all this information, and he met with reporters there trying to make it look like, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm revealing to the media 
all the horrible things that the United States government did in the lead up to the Iraq war. But at the same time, he was also meeting with Russian intelligence officers. And then, of course, he ends up in Russia and has been there ever since. One of the gentlemen on the show said that the material that was on these thumb drives, that if you printed them out on eight and a half by 11 paper, double-sided, that it you would end up with a stack of papers four miles tall. That's how much information he handed over to the Chinese and to the Russians. He pointed out, they pointed out that many different intelligence services can create cell phones that have encryption algorithms built into them, and they look like, you know, common brands of cell phones. And so it's very hard just looking at them to determine that uh, that's not an iPhone 11 Pro. It's an iPhone 11 Pro that has an encryption algorithm. So it's hard to track that down, except that they can be used, any cell phone can be used to track people. And they talked about the man in the middle attack. And that is where they pointed out that you fly somewhere. And what's about the first thing you do when you get the notification that it's okay now to turn your cell phones back on. You turn it on and you start looking at your messages and you start texting people that may have texted you while you were in the air. Well, what the whatever country you're in, and it probably happens in the U.S. as well, in the airport they've now built a mini tower, like a cell tower, and because it's the closest cell tower to you and your phone, when you turn your phone on, it connects to that tower, which then connects you to a regular cell tower. But in the meantime, that middleman, the mini tower, collects the data on your phone, gives it to the intelligence service that built the tower, and then that intelligence service could also download a virus through that mini tower to your phone that automatically sends them everything that you do on your phone. So if you're conducting secret discussions or classified discussions on your phone and you're a member of an intelligence service and you've been past one of these mini towers and you've, you are the subject of a man in the middle attack, you're essentially, without knowing it, sending them everything you're, you're texting about. That can compromise you, and it can also be used to send, to send you, you know, what the Russians call disinformatia, disinformation. So then they talked about the kind of the history of covert cameras, how they started out as being big and bulky and you would have to drill holes in the wall to set them up and so forth to now they're so small and they're so self-contained they can go in a fountain pen in a a 
pair of glasses. It, they can be miniaturized to about anything. And the, the people who kind of were the best at this for a long time was the KGB. They set up something called the 11th Lab. And their job was to find ways to easily conceal cameras in everyday objects. Of course, I said back at the beginning, they say that it's, it, you know, you collect this information, you've got to be able to pass it on. And up until the 1960s, it was impossible because of surveillance to contact people behind the Iron Curtain to even recruit them to possibly give information to the West. And then in 1960, a member of the military intelligence arm of the Soviet government, the GRU, contacted the CIA. He's a man by the name of Colonel Oleg Pinkovsky, and he contacted them. He'd become very disillusioned with the Soviet system. I believe, as I, I read about, I've read about him before, I believed he was passed over for a promotion, and he was very disillusioned by that. So he contacted the CIA and British intelligence and offered to bring them information. So the Brits and the U.S. set up a team, and Pinkovsky was one of the few highly placed GRU people who was allowed to leave the Soviet Union. So when he did have these trips to the West, he would bring out documents with him that he, or, or he, he would bring out the cameras that he had used to take pictures of tens of thousands of documents. And he would meet with his handlers in a hotel. He'd pass this on. They'd give him fresh film or new cameras. And he was clearly, they said, the best agent that they had for a long, long time. And he gave them, he didn't give them a lot of fluff. He gave them, or as Le Carre would call it, chicken feed. He gave them the gold. They didn't have to hunt through the chicken feed for the gold. He gave them the gold that really told them the truth about Soviet military capability and so forth. But unfortunately, he was found out. He was caught by the GRU put on trial and executed in 1962. And according to one rumor, his method of execution was being cremated while he was still alive. And the film of that was then shown to later recruits to show them what could happen to them if they decided to do the same thing. So they talked about the CIA, Office of Technical Service, whose job it is to develop these cutting-edge gadgets. They talked about a Polish spy who gave information to the West by the name of Rizard Klikinski, and they gave him lots of different types of cameras so he wouldn't be seen using the same kind of camera all the time. There was one that was in a pen. There was another that was in like a regular Bic cigarette lighter and another one that would fit into his digital watch, one of the first digital watches from Seiko. 
And over 10 years, he managed to get about 40,000 different documents to the West. And the CIA kind of, kind of heard some chatter that maybe he was found out and they were about to arrest him. And the CIA managed to get him and his family out of Poland and to the United States. So that was pretty exciting. I bet that's an exciting story to read about. Then they talked about airborne clandestine collection going back to the Civil War when somebody put a daguerreotype camera in a balloon. Now, balloons were used for observation in the Civil War where they would go up high enough to see troops on the other side and how they were arrayed. But somebody got the idea to put a camera in one of them and take pictures. The military, our military, probably other militaries and clandestine services, currently used high-altitude tethered balloons. In fact, I can remember <laughs> when I was with the FAA that we had some trouble with the military who wanted to put them too close to airways, I mean, they could go up this high into the airways that commercial aircraft at 35, 40,000 feet could fly at. And they didn't want to tell us when they were sending them up that was classified. And we said, well, you can't have that because you can't put them up through these federal airways that the airplanes use because that could end up being a disaster. But from tethered balloons, you know, we go to reconnaissance satellites, and they really became one of the most efficient collection methods that we had, except their only drawback was they're hard to move around. And then, of course, the next logical progression is to drones, which can be easily moved around, and like I said, can be miniaturized now, an agency in the government called DARPA is working on miniaturizing these drones down to almost ridiculous sizes, like one that's the size of a horsefly. Now, I've seen horseflies up to two or three inches big, but I've also seen them that are around one inch. And you look up and see a fly on the wall and think nothing of it, but that fly on the wall is transmitting your conversation or your meeting to someone else. So they talked about lasers, how you can use lasers to get sound, you know, point a laser at a at a at a window and the vib even the vibration of a conversational tone of human voice can be picked up by these lasers and bounced back to a receiver. And then other biometrics like you know, facial recognition can be, you know, it, it's, they're great for identifying terrorists, but they can also all of a sudden identify spies, particularly, and this is something I did not know. I thought they used only a handful of marks or positions on your face to determine facial recognition, recognition. But they make a map of 68 different landmarks on your face in order to identify you. And they talked about in China, China uses this, 
and how the police in China wear these special glasses that they can look at someone. It, it instantly measures those landmarks on their face, sends it back, and then the message comes back to the policeman, oh yeah, you got to go arrest that person. So that's pretty scary. That's a world that we might not want to live in, but it's here and we're probably never going to get rid of it. And as they said at the conclusion of this episode, a determined adversary will find a way to break through whatever security that you have. And of course, clandestine collection is at the heart of every espionage operation. And they likened it to a chess game. I make a move, they make a move. And the countermeasures to this are becoming harder and harder to do as the technology grows. So to me, again, that's the scary part of it, that we really don't know. I don't say we don't know how to counteract this because people are working on it constantly, but it's like we find a way to counteract it and then somebody else comes up with something different that we've now got to go find how to, how to counteract it. Okay. So I'm going to read a little bit more from a devil, the devil passed by, and then we're going to going to wrap up because we're almost at 45 minutes now. So I'm going to read from a few chapters down, except that it does go back in time. It goes back to 1969, and we're going to meet an 11 year old. My Fisher. McDermott Residence, Belfast, 1969. Bored because there was no one to play with, 11-year-old Maitland Matty Fisher wandered into the library of her cousin's house. Cousin Magret had friends her age over, boys, which Matty thought was both exciting in its defiance and risky if Magret's aunt were to find out. Mattie had been in this room many times, usually to talk with Magret's father and to ask him for one of his many books. A warm, cheerful man, he'd always obliged her. Every time Mattie had come into this room, Mr. McDermott would be seated in his favorite cozy armchair next to the fireplace. Mattie only ever visited in the summers, She'd never seen a fire going in the ash-laden firebox. Mattie knew Mr. McDermott wouldn't be sitting in his chair today or ever again. He died not long after her visit last summer. Mattie had thought that was something she and Magret could commiserate over, both of them losing their fathers. But Magret had been so serious from the time Mattie had arrived. Magret had angrily rebuffed Mattie's overtures to talk. Every day of Mattie's visit so far, Magret's friends would come. They'd talk in low voices up in Magret's room, and then they would leave for the protests. Mattie knew the literal meaning of the word protest, opposition to something, but she didn't understand what or why Magret protested. When Mattie had asked, Magret had been mean. You privileged brat, 
living in your big house with your servants, Magret had told her. You know nothing of real life, of what real people have to live with and endure. Magret didn't even give her the chance to ask for an explanation before she stormed from the house with her friends. Today, Mattie had entered the library because it was a place where Mr. McDermott had said she was always welcome. It looked much the same as it always had, but Mattie tiptoed into the room. Her guardian, John Stone, had said there was no such thing as ghosts, but Mattie didn't want to take the chance of disturbing Mr. McDermott's spirit. The first thing she noticed was his chair. The faded, striped upholstery had a big stain on the chair back, a dark stain, almost like rust. Also on the chair back, at about the height where Mr. McDermott's shoulders would rest, was a hole. The stain seemed to radiate from it, darker right around the hole and lighter the further away from it. The stain continued down to the seat. The next thing... Maddie noticed was a book on the floor by the chair. The book lay open on its spine. She knew how Mr. McDermott loved his books, remembered he'd shown her how not to break a book's spine while reading it and to always return the book she borrowed to its proper place on the shelf. Mr. McDermott would be upset to see one of his beloved books lying on the floor. Maddie picked up the book, but before she closed it, she saw the pages were splattered with something, as if someone had shaken a fountain pen over them. But these drops were a dark, rusty color like, What are you doing with that? Magret's sharp demand made Mattie jump. Magret strode into the room and snatched the book from the girl's hands. No one's to touch anything in this room, ever. But, your doll would be upset to see a book lying on the floor, Maddie said. I was going to put it away like he showed me. I'm sorry. Magret's angry face softened and she blinked rapidly, sniffing. She looked back over her shoulder and said, Go on ahead, lads. I'll join you in a bit. Murmuring voices faded along with the sounds of footsteps and the front door closed. Magret opened the book to the page with the splatters and placed it on the floor again. Maddie, she said, did anyone tell you what happened to my da? All right, I'll stop there. That's enough for now. Maybe I'll read a little more of it later. But the rough draft of this is more or less finished and I'll, I'm actually going to set it aside for a couple of months. I generally do that after a rough draft, draft to clear my head of it. And then I do a self-edit before I give copies to beta readers and to people who are going to critique it. So it'll, it'll be a couple of years before this will get published. You know, maybe three. It's, it's hard to tell. It depends on, on what the critique group or the beta readers say that I need to fix and work on. So I just wanted to show, you know, the readers what I'm working on, that I've always got something going on in my head and always trying to get it down on paper.
But starting on March 1st, which is not that far away, it's kind of hard to believe that we'll be moving into the third month of this new year, I'll be featuring my debut novel, which came out in 2017, and that's called A War of Deception, which is about a now supposedly retired Mai and Alexei hunting down a Russian mole in the FBI in early 2001. It's very loosely based on a true story, that of Robert Hansen, an FBI agent who was discovered to have been selling secrets to the Russian for almost three decades, very loosely based on it. Award Deception won an award for Best Historical Fiction in 2017. And I'm going to have it on sale for the entire month of March. So stay tuned for all of that. By the time of next week's podcast, I will have had shot number two of the COVID vaccine. And after a couple of weeks time for it to finish telling my body which cells it's supposed to fight, I'm hoping to be a lot more comfortable leaving my house. And that's about time after a year. I actually went into lockdown a few days early because I had a cold and was scared that I already had COVID, but it, the cold was over and done with in about three days, so I knew it couldn't be COVID. I'll still be wearing my mask. In fact, I'll probably be wearing my mask for all the rest of this year, maybe into next year. One thing, it helped with allergies over the summer, wearing a mask. In fact, I'm I'm using two of them now. I think I said that before. So don't forget yours when you leave the house. But remember, if you do have to leave your house, watch out how you use your cell phone. Be mindful of those miniature drones and always keep an eye out for spies. See you next week. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio, copyright 2021, all rights reserved.